My guest today is a former journalist and current YouTuber. I'm very pleased to welcome Aaron McIntyre. Aaron, are you ready to roar? Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. Sure thing, brother. Well, I want to start right there with the fact that you were a former journalist. So maybe you can get into that a little bit, how you became a journalist. I was actually a journalism major in college, but didn't end up doing it quite as a career, maybe for some similar reasons as to why you got out of it. Uh, But I'm curious what brought you to that and how your experience as a journalist ended up sort of shaping your worldview, be it on politics or, or whatever else. Yeah, so it's it's something that I never expected to do. I was in a weird situation where I kind of fell backwards into journalism. I had always been someone who was interested in politics. I went to school uh, for political science and and worked in in uh, kind of Republican politics for a little bit. Not, nothing big, but I worked in there for for a little while. And then uh, a few years down the road, my friend was working at a newspaper, and he had edited a few articles that I had written and his politics guy kind of fell out and, and he was the sports guy and they like forced him to start writing politics and he hated it. Uh, and so he's like, I desperately need to find someone to, to do this. Do you want to try, you know, do you want to sit in on a couple of these, you know, local meetings and write some articles? And, you know, I started freelancing and then just kind of slowly turned into uh, a full-time thing. Whereas I staff, you know, senior staff writer at a, at a kind of, local newspaper. And so why are you a former journalist then? What, 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 what actually brought you out of the industry? Sure. So there, I mean, there's a lot of things. I don't think it's, it's news for anyone who's familiar with the industry that, uh, especially print journalism is not doing well. Uh, most papers are consolidating. Uh, everything is just kind of an AP wire, uh, service reposter with some local stuff on it. And so there's not a lot of future. Basically, you can either get into one of the big, you know, get, get into kind of the Washington grinder or one, you know, one of the big outlets, or you can kind of get stuck managing a regional one somewhere. But there's not there's, there's really not a lot of on the ground uh, demand for reporting uh, print journalism anymore. And so it just wasn't something that I s- seemed like a long term stable career. You know, I was getting married, family, that kind of thing. Just. It didn't seem like a great place to be long term. I enjoyed the job. I, I really did. It was a very it's something different every day. And so, it, you know, it's it wasn't for for the lack of uh, of interest in the job, but it just didn't. You know, it doesn't seem like an industry print journalism. That's you know, at least it's going through a transition that makes it very difficult to, to stay a uh, part of one of the traditional outlets. Coming out of that, when did you decide to start speaking about political theory and such on your YouTube channel. What what were your influences that started you down this path of thinking, well, there's not just these other people saying these things out here, whether they're in the NRX uh, area or otherwise. Uh, why did you decide to add your voice to, I guess, this this political philosophical realm? Well, like I said, it was just something I was, I was always interested in. And as I had watched the 2016 election, been involved in reporting, kind of seen a little bit, you know, again, nothing major, uh, you know, I was at a local outlet, but just seeing how the sausage gets made, interacting with nas- other national, you know, news media people who would come through and stuff. I really started saying, okay, politics doesn't work the way it was described to me. It's not what I was taught in school. It's not what I got a degree in. It's not even what I reported on. There, there's more to this and I want to understand it better. And so I'd been listening to some people on YouTube, I had been reading some of the people that they had suggested. A lot of the uh, the, the neo reactionary political theorists that you were talking about there, guys like Curtis Yarvin and Nick Land. And as I got deeper into that, I said, you know what? Uh, I want to turn this into something so I can explain to people the journey I'm on. You know, the things I'm learning. Here's what here's what I'm I'm looking at, and and how this is changing the way I look at the world and I look at politics. And I thought maybe people might be interested in in kind of hearing some of that too. And uh, it turned out that slowly but surely, you know, it, they did, and things went well. And so that's why I'm doing what I'm doing now. I've had at least one person on the show. Um, in, the, in the previous iteration of the show, I did have Charlemagne on, and he kind of described his view of what neo reactionaryism or the movement is. Uh, do you want to get into what maybe just what you see the definition is? And I guess the question I really ask with that is, what exactly are neo reactionaries reacting to? Sure, absolutely. So you know, it's 
two two parts to the word you know uh neo just means new updated right current and then reactionary um is a bit of a loaded term right it's often used as an insult for people who don't want to progress want to freeze things where they are or take things back to an earlier time but i think the intellectual tradition that we're talking about when we talk about reactionaries are people who were rejecting the enlightenment right the people like Thomas Carlyle or Joseph de Maistre, who were writing uh, kind of, you know, as the Enlightenment was getting into full swing and things were happening, and they were warning, saying, guys, this this isn't going to play out the way you think it is. This is not going to work out the way you want it to. And society is going to pay a cost for adopting a lot of these ideas that, uh, you know, that you're talking about here. And so when I, when I think of a neo-reactionary, I tend to think of a, someone in the current day who is also questioning assumptions uh, that have been taken on board and internalized by pretty much our entire culture about the Enlightenment, the values that it represented, the political process, the legitimizations of power that it represented, just someone who, who is working against those things. And then inside Neo-Reaction, there are many different you know, camps and beliefs and theories and, and all kinds of stuff. It's not a it's not a formal discipline. It's a loose collection of blogs and YouTubers, right? So there's not a doctrine that says, here is what neo-reaction is. But if people ask me, you know, to sum up the idea in, in you know, kind of a couple sentences, I'd say someone who is currently reviving that idea that maybe the Enlightenment didn't do everything we thought it does. And maybe we should be questioning some of its assumptions in the modern day. Gotcha. So it's almost like um, a, a political red pilling. Like it's it's more about not necessarily a, a certain belief, but a, a more of a uh, I guess a um, a questioning or a skepticism over official narratives of of how politics and philosophy and history have played out over the last you know several hundred years or what have you. Yeah, I think it would be fair to say that there are a couple of assumptions that most people who look at neo reactionary thought take on board. But I think, like I said, especially now, um, it has kind of diverged into so many different branches and areas and and kind of disagreements that you would you would have a hard time just lining up a list of things that neo reactionaries believe. But I think, like I said, those core tenets are definitely things like, you know, uh, liberal enlightenment democracy is, is not the panacea, uh, that progress is not something that is necessarily uh, we should assume or should assume is good. Uh, and, and those kind of things are, are some things that I think most neo-reactionaries would start with no matter where else they went to. Let's dig on this point of the Enlightenment, since that seems to really be um, what a lot of this thought is, is centered around reacting to. And, I, you know, this is and this is something that's really come up, I think, a lot in at least at least in the circles I run in. I've been seeing a lot of this talk about the Enlightenment and and all the problems that it's caused and how it's led to like you know the, the liberal disaster of the 20th century. And it's always a subject that I can see a lot of points in. But when I still look at the sort of the overall, at least the grand scope of what of at least what we're led to believe is is you know what represents the age of Enlightenment, the age of reason, um, the age of you know following the scientific method. At the base of what that should be, anyway, it does sound like a good thing to me. So that you know, I'm I'm sort of in this area where I'm I'm trying to sort it all out. I I wouldn't really say I have a, a terribly strong opinion on it, but maybe you could just dig into, maybe just first of all start with some of the base assumptions that we are told or that we have about the Enlightenment, and you know, pick a few that you think are 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 wrong that and, and you know discuss why. Sure. So obviously, if you talk to an academic or a historian, they'll have a particular narrative or idea of what the Enlightenment is. But I think kind of the general popular idea of the Enlightenment, as much as there is one, is that, you know, humanity had a bunch of superstitions and a bunch of folk ways, a bunch of traditions, and they were rigid and, and, and power was held by, you know, just those with military might and, and this kind of thing. For, for most of human history. And then somewhere around, you know, the 16-ish hundreds, uh, you know, again, depending on, on who's telling the story, we start to get the scientific method and the scientific age. And this brings about re- rationality and reason. And instead of basing our knowledge or our understanding of our, our management of things in superstition and tradition and, and the kind of these institutions, instead, everything is based in this rational uh, uh, 
this this rational idea of science, this process that we can filter everything through. And we don't just apply it, of course, to the natural sciences. We start to see the systemization of everything, right? We start to see the scientific method get applied to things like politics and start asking questions about what would be the most efficient way to to govern a people? How how would this best work? And by applying this new age of reason and 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 of objectivity to the way that we manage our politics, we bring about a flourishing of human humanity and freedom. Uh, you know, democracy replaces the divine right of kings, the will of the people. Uh, you know, the, the, this is now the guiding the guidance, and you know. Uh, uh, the fundamental individual rights of humans becomes predominant over the duty to church or family or state or king or whatever. Uh, and and this is what creates kind of our new world of innovation and, and, and all those things. And uh, we've left kind of all those old human impulses and uh, systems behind, and that's brought us into the new era. And we will continue to progress along these lines until we kind of start, you know, perfecting things. Things will continually get better because we will continue to apply this ever-refining evolutionary process of science and reason to both, obviously, our, our technology, but also to our government and the way we manage society. I think that's kind of the, the general notion most people have about the Enlightenment and it, its fruits. I think there's, there's two different sort of branches there that... I may lump together in my mind sometimes because there's reason, the, the concept of reason and following reason, which I mean, I, I don't think I, anybody should maybe I don't think anybody would really argue that in our day to day lives and in our, our thinking and our, our the way we process information, we should try to follow reason to where it leads. Um, but then there's this other discussion of taking the scientific method and just copying and pasting it over politics or even re using it to replace a, a certain kind of morality it, it, is that would you say that's an accurate representation of, of the issue of just utilizing the scientific method in this other realm of politics well i think that's that's certainly part of it right uh, i think that that's a huge part is the attempt to use the window dressing of science to justify many of the systems that we see today in place politically i think that's a huge problem the massification of the state is in itself I think a consequence of the Enlightenment, um, uh, but we can get into that deeper if you if, if you want to. But um, but also, I think there is a mistake in thinking in assuming that humans have become rational beings and that we, we that our day to day positions are based our, our our decisions and positions are based on reason. I don't think that's actually how most people make their decisions. I think reason plays a part but i think pretending that the average person has reasoned out their understandings of the war between russia and ukraine or how money works or you know or why we credential things the way we do or why government programs exist i don't think that's true i think they receive most of those things from credentialed people who wield power and and weave narratives and those are the things that determine large chunks of our lives. And so I think it's important to undersell, undersell, understand ourselves Sorry, as both rational beings, but also deeply irrational beings. And when we treat ourselves as only rational, or we assume that we can refine human behavior down only to the rational, that's dangerous. And it leads us to make silly conclusions that I think, unfortunately... Um, are, are very clear in, in no offense, the, the libertarian movement uh, is something that happens very often. I won't take offense there. You can trust <laughs> me on that one. <laughs> Some others might. Uh, if, yeah, and if, I mean, if there's anything the last two years should have hammered home, uh, if, if the, it wasn't clear before that, yeah, on a mass scale and even an individual scale, humans don't necessarily use reason to make their decisions, uh, make their de decisions about what their beliefs are um, or what they think about certain current events. Because like you said, we're not receiving per se information. We're receiving propaganda. We're receiving narratives. And then you know our mind sort of processes it, that however it can based on our own presuppositions. So there's a lot to unpack there. What I, what I want to dig a little bit further into is the idea that we 
like in our thought, like in your thought process, for for example, when you're sitting down and thinking out, you know, your political theories or putting together a video, um, you are, you know, almost by definition using reason or at least attempting, I, I would say, using reason to put these thoughts together. You you are trying to present rational thoughts. I, I would presume we all want to present rational thoughts, even if within that we still have this knowledge that on a day-to-day basis with so much we do in life, we're maybe just acting emotionally and, and trying to fill in the reason, you know, on the back end. Um, so I'm just, what, what I'm trying to filter out here is I guess the difference between, yes, I think we can look at humanity and say like, clearly humans are not like using reason as their, their primary method. And so certainly to whatever extent the enlightenment would have claimed or people that support the enlightenment would claim to, that it accomplished that. I, I couldn't agree more. So I, I think the question goes down to what should we be believing and how should we be arriving at those conclusions? So would you argue that we should, even if we don't, or even if we can't, should use reason to arrive at, say, our morality? Or is that the problem? Is the problem that people are trying to rationalize a morality? And then that's when we run into trouble, which which the Enlightenment might have pushed out previous methods or what have you that people you know, came to or accepted as cer- certain moral codes. Yeah, I think that reason is obviously going to be a useful tool. None of us can escape it. Pretending even even if we aren't being rational, we feel it necessary to filter our decisions through the kind of laundering mechanism of rationality, right? So that's always going to be a part of it, both genuinely when we are using reason and even when we're not, we feel the need to invoke reason as a final decider as to why we made a decision or a justification as children of the enlightenment we just can't escape it i do it all the time you know it, it's it's going to happen to everybody so i don't think we can escape reason nor should we right this i'm not this is not me saying reason is bad the the point is as you said trying to assume that we can a priori reason you know construct a a morality and a system of being s- solely from reason by taking the evidence and working out all uh, you know all the best formulas, we can just apply it to a spreadsheet and then shake out the way that life should be structured, government should be structured, society should be structured. That's a dangerous idea, and it's one that, as much as we you know, as, as as much as we see all the other things that are coming into the discussion in kind of our popular culture about how our morality should be based. That's still the core argument, right? So often is like, well, this is the best thing for the most. It's, it's utilitarian with, but somehow the values are always based on also my morality, right? And, and so th- that is so often the way the decisions are w- made and the way morality is justified. And so I think we really have to start understanding that uh, that no one's morality is entirely uh, constructed out of reason, and to approach morality and because morality has to in many ways be the basis of most decisions about things like government to uh, to approach government those kind of things through that lens i think is dangerous and leads us into many of the mistakes that enlightenment liberals make when they're trying to discuss uh things pretending that there are things like objective uh policies that the government puts into place i think is a, is a common mistake that we get when when we assume that these things can be just constructed from the ground up by reason. All right, gang. Well, one thing you can follow logic and reason to is that you should definitely be supporting this, your favorite podcast, your favorite podcast network in any way you can, because this is what we do. This is what we're trying to do. This is what I'm personally trying to do, make more of a living out of. And you can help us by supporting us over on Patreon at patreon.com slash lions of liberty or on locals at lionsofliberty.locals.com. And either way, you'll get access to all of our bonus content, including live streams of most of these interviews that I do, including early access to a lot of shows, like our very fun review of the filmed Grizzly Man that dropped this past weekend. Patrons had early access to that, and they got a little bonus story that most of you didn't get at all. But more importantly, really, by supporting Lions of Liberty on any of our platforms, you really do help us grow. We're hoping to get back to some in-person events this year, looking at Pork Fest, looking at Freedom Fest, and the more resources we have to do so, the more we are able, well, to do so, <laughs> I guess you could say. Uh, so we really do appreciate this show. 
has always been funded largely by the listeners. We occasionally have sponsors like you'll hear later today, our friends at Paloma Verde, but by and large, the show has always been mostly funded uh, by you guys, by the people that support what we're doing. So if you like what we're doing here at Lions Liberty, if you like my new direction, the best way to support all of that is at patreon.com slash lionsofliberty or lionsofliberty.locals.com. Okay, I think there's a couple of different. So there's one concept of like applying the rational method or the scientific method just to like politics or or government policy or what have you. Mm-hmm. What about when we are talking as as you referenced there, like just individual morality? When we're getting to the concepts involving, say, individual rights, with obviously you know a lot of the thought thought behind the the concepts of individual rights came out of the those thoughts from the enlightenment from that era um so what like should i'm trying to figure out the right way to the, the right way to reason this the right way to say this um sh- like should can we i guess i should say can we use reason to derive a morality can can you get a moral code in your view by following reason to certain ends or and and if not so how 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 should humans come to a moral code how should they come to a moral understanding uh because when i look at morality um at, at the end of the day i can i think i can reason out even if i might have some something beyond that i believe in or what have you at the same time i can look at a lot of let's say moral positions i might hold and they actually line up with what i think would be a rational thought process you know for example i don't I don't want to be, you know, I don't, I don't want to attack someone. So if I want to have a moral, I don't, I don't want to be attacked. I should say, whether it's my physical person or my house robbed. And if I'm going, if I don't want that, then, you know, I can to follow reason to that end. I have to advocate for, for others not to be allowed to do that to me and me not to be allowed to do that to others. So that's just, it's not a moral code, but I, I can see ways that I can follow reason and it lines up perfectly with a moral code, uh, if that makes sense. So so I guess, how much do you see this, the necessary separation of following reason for developing a moral code? And if we should be disregarding reason or to whatever extent reason should be set aside, how should people derive a moral code? Sure. So I think uh, assuming that you can reason your way to moral code is, is really dangerous on a lot of levels, right? And there's many different examples of that, for instance, and not to go directly to mid-century Germany, but, you know, that's a very technologically advanced people. Like, that's a very reasonable people for that time, right? These are, these are industri- extremely industrially advanced scientific people. I don't think we're going to say that they deduce the best moral code, right? Like, I, I think that um, it's very easy to see how a very intelligent, very reasonable people can uh, arrive at a very dangerous moral code. I think also assuming that we can reason our way to uh, morality leaves a, a lot of understandings of community, right? So if you're individually trying to say, well, I want a reciprocal behavior so I can reason myself into why I should do this because I want to see other people do that. Well, that's great, except that's not how society works. That's not how families work, right? You have to sacrifice. You have to be unreasonable things. There is no, you cannot reason yourself in to the large scale amount of sacrifice necessary to bring civilization into being, to bring a great uh, society into being. There's, there's, there's not a way that you can individually rationalize each one of the sacrifices that will be necessary to take those steps forward. You need to have a deeper understanding of the value of community, family, creed, people, you know, religion, all those things. If you're going to build a a greater society and the benefits that come with it, you can't really, you, you can justify, uh, you know, uh, you can justify low time preference to some level, but if you really want to get to those higher levels, you need more than beyond, you know, just just your basic reason. Uh, also, I think reason takes you to a lot of very dangerous places. Uh, we can see this with the slippery slope debates of morality today, right? So many times where people say, well, this doesn't affect you. How could this be a problem? Long term, I mean, you can't just say that just because this one thing happens, the next thing that's going to happen. That's a logical fallacy. That doesn't make any sense. And then we watch every one of these predictions come true right like the the little old lady in the 80s going to the southern baptist church was far more correct about the direction of our culture was than very learned and reasonable people were at that time 
was was it because she had a bunch of doctorates? Is it because she was able to put together a proper syllogism? No, it's because she ignored many of what reasonable people people said for what she knew to be true. Things that she didn't arrive to, through to for, through reason, but through received understanding, wisdom that came down through many many centuries of tradition, religion, those kind of things, and so. Uh, I, I don't think I don't think you can reason yourself to a morality, and I think attempts to do for do so have gotten us pretty much to exactly where we are today. Well, let's apply that to like I guess I guess modern politics. Uh, you know, so I think it's safe to say that. Well, I think a lot of people that you know got all wrapped up in the COVID hysteria, or that followed every single mask order, or took every vaccine they were told to take. You know, the same people that believes every single narrative they hear about about Ukraine. They believe, probably, I guess, that they're following reason or that maybe not that they are, but that someone smarter than them already has, whether it's a mm-hmm. politician or uh, a scientist or what have you. They believe that that reason is being followed. Um, but I think so much of so much of the many of the people that really saw this stuff coming. Yes, I think you could break down all the reasons that those scientists, those politicians, et cetera, were, were not actually following reason for sure. They were not actually being rational, but they were, they were doing things in the name of reason. I, I guess I should say they're, they're, they're giving actually using reason, actually attempting to be rational, a bad name. Whereas a lot of the people that detected the bullshit, and maybe that's kind of part of what you're speaking to here. It is maybe just whether it's intuition or, or the bullshit detector reason might kind of put that aside because really in the beginning, anyway, it's hard to be a, a rational person in any way, in any way, especially with a big supposed crisis like the COVID stuff, when information is just flying at you in every direction. I don't know how any one person could necessarily process all of that information and determine what the exact rational course for them or for others to take is. But I, I, a lot of people were able to sniff out the bullshit and able to say, this just smells wrong. And maybe I can't draw a line from A to B to C and spell it exactly what's wrong about it. So is that like a, a large part maybe of why looking to reason and looking to people who claim to be following science and following reason has sort of led, I guess, a lot of people to be sort of cast aside as the conspiracy theorists or wacky loons. And maybe a lot of those people are just people that have intuition and, and sort of have a gut feeling about things and they follow it and are, and are often more correct than not. And that wasn't really a question as much as a rant, but but it curious your thoughts. No, I think, I mean, I think in a lot of ways that's accurate, right? Like we have these people who were enshrined as the arbiters of reason, right? Doctors, you know, scientists, uh, you know, uh, media experts. These are the people who disseminate the information. They're the ones who have the credentials. They're the ones who have published papers, peer review. They, they had the big foundations. Like they are the ones who are the... If there's anyone who should be rational and reasonable, it's them. That's why we entrust them with so much power, right? This is the nature of our technocratic government. There's always an expert. There's always someone who has acquired enough specific knowledge in order to uh, operate the machine better, and you should defer to them, right? That's a big part of modern life. No one fixes their own car and their own house and, like, milks the cow and bakes that. Like, you don't do the majority of the things in your life, you farm them out to people who do them for you because they have the expertise, right? That that's the reasonable thing to do. It's a rational thing to do. Why, why operate something when someone who is far more learned in it and far more ex, uh, an expert in it, why not let them handle it? Well, at the end of the day, humans are humans, right? And it turns out that if you turn over power to people unchecked and you give them the, this ability well, they might use it in their own interest rather than in in the name of science and reason in which you've enshrined them. And so, yeah, I think there's a a large, you know, I say this all the time on Twitter, right-wing anons who are calling out all these things about COVID and predictions and pandemics and vaccines and all this stuff. Alex Jones himself, they're, they're not prophets. They don't have any magical ability. But what they have is the ability to say, uh, all the people who hate me are doing this and I don't care how rational they are. Uh, I know that these people don't have my best interests in mind. I know the people who do have my best sister in mind don't like what these people are doing. 
and I'm going to look into this. And there's an irrational element to be sure. But I think there's also a very instinctual element to that, a very political element, uh, the uh, uh, political animal. And also, again, not so much in the COVID, but in other areas, tradition, tradition, knowledge that has been handed down through, uh, through religion, through folkways, through literature, through things that are building blocks of culture that enshrine lessons, valuable lessons your civilization has learned over hundreds or thousands of years. Those things guard you against these faddish claims of, of, of experts, right? And if you turn those things over and say, no, those things can be abolished in a moment because someone comes out and says, you know, men can become women. Well, then you are, you're destroying something far deeper. That's not just, I don't think calling it just reason is enough. It's something more. It's something more valuable in the moment because reason will lead you to experts who will tell you it's fine to lock people in their house for two years. But everybody who's really has any tradition, any knowledge, any understanding, uh, and any instinct knows better, right? Well, you know who else knows better, gang? It's our friends, Carlos and Vanessa Ablar of Paloma Verde CBD. What'd you think of that transition? Slightly awkward, maybe, but they do know better. They know best when it comes to CBD products. They know best how to get those products straight to your house for free. Free shipping over $75 for any and all of their products. And you also get a 20% discount when you use discount code ROAR at checkout. These guys have it all. You got gummies. You got solves. You got CBD for your pets. The best thing I ever did was use one of these solves on my neck, this joint, this spot in my upper shoulder and my lower neck that is always just killing me. This solve was one of the few things that has ever truly helped calm that down and let me relax. So I cannot recommend these CBD products highly enough. My only complaint is that the gummies, the CBD gummies are so delicious. It's really hard not to eat them all in one sitting. But you know, that being said, maybe you just order two, one for, one for leisure and one for just eating recreationally and one for your actual CBD needs. But either way, you'll be able to afford those because you get this amazing discount from Lions Liberty. Again, head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com. I'm going to spell that for you just in case. Paloma, P-A-L-O-M-A, Verde, V-E-R-D-E, PalomaVerdeCBD.com. Don't forget to use discount code ROAR for 20% off your order. And one one thing you brought up there and mentioned a few times is the, the concept of sacrifice, for example. And yeah, I don't know if like a mathematician or a scientist would ever sit down and like do all the charts and then be like, oh, yes, it appears that man should sacrifice to achieve X and X, Y or Z end. So is that really maybe a lot of the not, not the total crux, but like a lot of the crux of the problem that you would see with the Enlightenment is that it's. It's discounting and poo-pooing, I guess, as just fairy tale nonsense. And I don't think it really matters whether, you know, a lot of like religious stories or what have you are real in a literal sense or not. But I think the point you're making is they're they're conveying concepts that that really bring forth thousands of millennium not thousands of millennia, but thousands of years of mankind's experience of seeing what actually what can actually work in life? It's giving you a blueprint and maybe that blueprint is connected to some fantastical stories, uh, depending on your religion, maybe more fantastical, maybe some more fantastical than others. But the point being they're conveying lessons about life that maybe you don't necessarily derive from, you know, just from being in, you know, being in, in a laboratory or what have you, such as the concepts of sacrifice and, 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 and such. And especially when it comes to even more so, I think beyond like the individual and the family thriving, um, how civilizations thrive, you know, when people do have a common purpose, when people are willing to sacrifice for their neighbors and their communities and their families. And that essentially makes the whole community stronger. So would you say that is one of the bigger criticisms here is that it's not that that it's incorrect to follow reason. It's incorrect to remove these very wise sort of uh, blueprints or codes or whatever guidebooks, whatever you want to call religious and, and cultural texts over these years. Um, it it poo poos them and, and sort of shuts them down with this concept of reason sort of being the new God in some ways. Yeah. And to, again, just to reiterate, I'm not decrying reason. I'm not saying you don't use reason. I'm not saying reason isn't valuable. We would be having this discussion the way we're having it if we weren't trying to reason together. Right. So 
So it's not a battle of either it's got to be this mindless superstition or reason. The problem with the Enlightenment and the assumption and kind of the what got onboarded is that there would be the separation between reason and narrative or religion or tradition or whatever you would like to call it. However, you would like to talk about that embodied collective understanding of humanity. These things that were not separate domains before, you know, kind of the enlightenment. These were not, these were not vastly different things. These were things a part of a, that were part of a holistic life. The trick that we play on ourselves is thinking that the enlightenment split these things apart and created a situation where reason could just reign supreme without needing anything else. We talked about sacrifice and you're right to say that religion or folkways or, or the narr- or, or the narrative aspect of being allows people to make important sacrifices for civilization that are, you know, just fundamental that that's absolutely true, but let's not pretend for a moment that the age of the enlightenment didn't bring about itself new gods with which to sacrifice to, right? The first thing they did was get rid of the cross in, uh, in um, uh, Notre Dame and crown the goddess of reason, right? That's, that's, you know, the first thing they do is start basically Literally. worshiping reason. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's not a metaphor. That's an actual thing they did. <laughs> right. And so, uh, so humans are deeply narrative religious creatures. You will worship something. It will happen. You might be worshiping God, you might be worshiping you know, reason, but you will worship something. And so there were many things that were sacrificed for, you know, millions of people were sacrificed on the altars of liberalism. Whether you look at the, you know, the, the, the mass conscription is a, is a, in, is a uh, enlightenment development, right? It's not until we see uh, liberal democracies that we really start seeing to, you know this mass mobilization in the say in 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 modern times now obviously uh modern weapons also uh contribute significantly to those death tolls but but that kind of total war and that total conscription mass conscription those things are based on the ability of governments to summon the will of the people right if you're the king you can only ask so much of so many you're still one man you may have much much power but you still have to make deals with people uh, when when you are speaking in the name of the people, when you are ruling in the name of the people, you can ask pretty much everything from everyone, and they did. And so th- their sacrifice didn't go away. The people who are doing insane things to their children because the state school and the TV tell them to today, they're sacrificing something, to be clear. Sacrifice is not God. We just changed what we're sacrificing to yeah you mentioned the concept of uh worship there and how we're all going to worship something and I, I wrote about this fairly recently on my Substack because i it, it what, what in another life <laughs> a previous life i guess it's maybe this is an extension of that life i was a rabid ron paul supporter i mean i still like ron paul a lot but i was an insane person the kind of person that would spend all day posting Ron Paul videos, telling everyone on Facebook they have to vote for Ron Paul, arguing with people in the comment section. And I don't think it's a coincidence that at the same time I was becoming this evangelist for this cause and this person was at the same time that I was the most atheist I could ever be. Um, and I, I had rejected religion in every way, shape, and form. And I, but I was still worshiping something, and I was worshiping like a maniac. Like I, I mean, it was, and it it was really something that was filling my spirit. And I, I I I literally did see it as a mission. And and I think looking back, I can so much see how that became my identity. Because at the end of the day, we're all searching for our identity. It's I don't know why it's it's ingrained in our. I know why probably because it helps our survival to have an identity and to convene with others. So if that identity identity is not the religion you're raised in or another religion or some other type of community you can pretend you're you're a nihilist or whatever well you'll probably get involved really he'll probably be really big on the nihilist community and you'll probably never shut up about it because now you're worshiping nihilism uh so i i think there's really is no way to escape it and i i think it's not a coincidence that as as i've become less atheist i guess you might say the less i have clung to other identities i held to before particularly political identities yeah, no, I think that that's absolutely correct, right? And and this is why I always have a, a problem with kind of the the new atheist um, IDW types, right? Is they'll look at uh, kind of the current fads, the the wokeness in politics, and they'll say, well, this is just 
religion. It's just a new religion, which is true. It, that's, that, that part is true. They're right about that part. But they'll say, so the problem is just that it's a religion and we just need to get rid of it like we got rid of Christianity. And then everyone, once they escape the grips of religion, will be able to go on and have fully realized and rational lives and never need this foolish thing again. But like you said, people crave identity. They need it. It's literally what gives your life purpose. Um, it, it's what allows people to continue on through through the suffering of life. If you do not have some kind of identity and community uh, and a metaphysical understanding, whether you call it metaphysical or not, which undergirds your ability to deal with the difficult things of life, then you will collapse as a human. It's just impossible. And you certainly won't coalesce as a society, a civilization of people, or even form families, right? And And because of that, um, you're never going to escape this. So the idea that uh, you know we can just shift away from religion in any facet is, is always a mistake. You're like I said, you're always going to worship something. Something will always define your identity, define your life, define your understanding of good and and of being and community. Um, and if it's not going to be a traditional religion, uh, it will be one you have constructed for yourself, or more likely, the most likely thing someone else has constructed for you under the guise of you know, progressivism or rationality or whatever it might be. And that's how you get people just um, vociferously proclaiming that you must talk with, you must talk to fourth graders and above about sex because it's a moral, it's it's a moral good. And, and, you know, that they're worshiping this other religion that that was crafted for them in this case. Um, Something you mentioned earlier that I want to circle back to um, is how the re- you see the in the enlightenment also as being responsible for the growth of the state and i guess if you probably just look at charts and graphs that probably is true i mean I, we have the biggest government we've ever seen in our lives the biggest debt we've ever seen in our lives but in you know in, in human history the biggest debt we ever seen in human history um so that certainly does track but at least on the surface. So can you dig into more why you believe the enlightenment to be responsible for that? Because again, especially in the libertarian circles or what have you, the ideas stemming out of the enlightenment are, are what are seen as let's say responsible for the American revolution uh, responsible for, and that's a whole nother, you know, the rabbit hole we don't have to go down right now, but uh, for the concepts of individual Liberty. Uh, so where's the disconnect there? Why do so many people believe that, that this thing that is inspiring people to at least believe in um, concepts of individual rights of natural rights and this sort of thing? Why is, why is that actually leading to a larger state that which, which in theory, those same people would abhor the most? Sure. So you can see this in a lot of different authors. Again, Joseph de Maestra explains this, I think pretty, pretty succinctly. He says that, um, uh, the, the the king can only be one man uh, and he can only demand so much, but the things that can be demanded in the name of the people is huge. You also see this in, um, in uh, um, sorry, another French author whose name is escaping me. Uh, uh, De Juvenal, Bertrand De Juvenal and, and Bertrand De Juvenal does a really, has a really great book. It's a lot of what uh, uh, a lot of NRX is, is based in, in kind of a de juvenile uh, understanding of power. But he says, like, basically, uh, again, like this, this uh, idea of power always wants to coalesce. Power always wants to centralize. Uh, states, uh, warlords, whatever you are, you're always in an arms race with the people next to you for power, right? And so uh, it's a nat- it's a natural thing for power to always want to accrue more power and 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 take power from other spheres. And what the Enlightenment did is it shifted again the the justification uh, of of government from uh, from the military ability or even the divine right of kings to one of popular sovereignty. And and popular sovereignty allowed for the massification of society and the state in a lot of ways. Uh, mostly of which you can, because you can, you have this overarching justification for almost any, anything because it's not one person, one king, or even a, a, a ruling class demanding something of you. It's literally the entire society. And so it, it provides a, an intellectual framework that allows power to kind of uh, expand expon- you know, uh, exponentially, uh, probably mixing my terms there. But uh, the point being is that it, 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 uh, it basically takes the reins off of what the state can do. It also collapses other spheres of influence. So the government can only ask so much of you in more traditional societies because it wasn't the only 
sphere of influence. Yes, again, the king is powerful, but he has other nobles and he has to draw upon their power in order to get done what he wants to. But it's not just him. Uh, it's not just them. Uh, guilds, uh, church, uh, local civic organizations, they all generate their own spheres of power and social capital and influence and loyalties that people have to, uh, to those organizations. And the family, of course, is the ultimate one, right? If, you're, if, you, if you can't be loyal, if you don't have loyalty to your family, then what else could you possibly have loyalty to? It's the most basic connection, bond, and, uh, and uh, obligation you could have. But what the Enlightenment does is slowly erode each one of those, right? It's, it's hard to pretend that the Enlightenment did not erode the power of religion, the power of, uh, uh, of the church, uh, the power of the family. I think that's, that's what we're seeing now is the final push to erode the, the power of the family. And as each one of those responsibilities and each one of those obligations fell away from those different spheres, guess what was there to pick them up? The state right? In every instance. Well, you don't have to educate your kids. The state will educate your kids. Well, you don't have to feed your, your, uh, your uh, relatives who uh, don't have any money. The, the state will feed your relatives. You don't have to take care of your neighbor. The state will take care of your neighbor. And as the, as the state, uh, as each one of those, uh, as each one of those institutions receded in power, the state assumed those burdens and therefore the bonds of loyalty and the bonds of uh, that generate the power that that the state has today. And so I think that the Enlightenment's ability to atomize the individual, turn them into a, a kind of rootless uh, uh, individual who does not have loyalty to anything beyond the state, has therefore facilitated the growth of the state and its ability to command uh, obedience from everyone. All right. So, well, since we've mostly been on the Enlightenment, I- I'm just going to kind of ra- wrap up by uh, digging in just a little more here on that concept. Um, and I think one thing that you'll certainly hear a lot and that I certainly think to myself as I sit here with this amazing microphone um, and then this computer talking to you, you know, whatever miles away, um, like certainly this wouldn't be possible without scientific progress. Science, I hate the word progress, but you know what I mean in that sense. Um, or following reason to these ends. Um, to give us the great medical technology. I mean, it's, it's quite possible that if we didn't have certain technologies, quite probable, you might even say, you and I wouldn't be alive today. <laughs> so, and, mm-hmm. so I guess my thought on this is, while agreeing with all of your criticisms of, of what came out of the Enlightenment, is it, is, it, is it fallacious to look at the light, not fallacious, but is it, you know, it's, it, we can look at history and the concepts we bring out of it in many different ways. So like, just for example, I guess if we can look at Thomas Jefferson and be like, Thomas Jefferson was one of the worst human beings that ever lived because he owned slave slaves. So we could just look at that aspect of him and look at nothing else he ever did said or wrote or whatever and pull one storyline out. Or we could look at like the mass of his life and the mass of his work and a lot of the other things he said and come out with a totally different picture. So are we just looking by we, I guess I mean you and other neo-reactionaries that have this view. Are you just looking at just the bad that came out of the enlightenment and building the story around just the bad and maybe ignoring a lot of the good? Um, or, or is it, is it really that bad? <laughs> I guess, or, I mean, do, do you really think that even, or, or I guess, I guess part of that question would be, would you even concede that following reason and the age of science or whatever it may be led to this greater technology? Or do you think we would still have these developments without that necessarily, necessarily having that same, you know, philosophical age? Yeah. So I think there, there's a lot there and, and uh, many different aspects and avenues to explore. I think the first thing would be to say, that uh, we're making the assumption uh, that you pointed out there at the end that technological innovation only would have come about with the Enlightenment, that the Enlightenment is the source of technological innovation. And I don't think that's true. Um, I think it's definitely a catalyst, right? I think the refinement of the scientific method itself can't be undersold. Well, it can't. It, it, it can't. We can't pretend that they did not have a... a revolutionary impact on technology, right? But it's not like technological innovation hadn't come before. Uh, So in many ways, what we're looking at is, did this process itself accelerate things? I think that answer to that is yes. But did simply time in some ways compound those, uh, uh, those discoveries? I think that's true as well. I don't think we would have gone as fast and as far as we did without the Enlightenment. 
Um, but I don't think that we would be sitting around a campfire, you know, hunting dinosaurs either. You know, I think there would, I think there would be uh, somewhere, somewhere in between there. The other question we want to ask ourselves when we look at the, uh, you know, the whole thing this way is, is technology forever? Right. We, 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 I think what we're doing is we're buying into something called Whig history, right? The idea that progress is continual and the line will always go up and humanity will always move forward. But a quick look at history, we know that's not true, right? Technology has collapsed many times throughout history. Uh, of course, the fall, fall of the Roman Empire is a, is a classic one, the Bronze Age, Bronze Age collapse. And there are many other times where developments, scientific uh, innovation, technology is lost for hundreds, you know, maybe even, uh, you know, a thousand years until someone comes back over maybe and rediscovers or comes at it a different way. And so we're assuming that the fruits of the enlightenment are continuous and permanent, but I don't think that's true. And I think we can tell by what's happening right now, right? We're having a debate as, as to whether two and two is four or five, right? Whether math is racist. Uh, we have entire sectors of our economy and uh, of our military apparatus, people don't know how to operate anymore because the people who used to do it don't do it. They're leaving the jobs and the new people don't learn it. They learn the shortcuts. They don't know. We, we have, I think there was, I forget what the story was, but there was some military aircraft where they had to reverse engineer an entire process on there because no one had done it for like a decade and no one knew how to do it anymore. Uh, and and so I I think that assuming that our innovations just go there's a straight line from the enlightenment up to the top right corner and that's just how technology evolves and it's all due to unlocking the power of science and reason i think is a misnomer i think that because we have benefited for so long we just kind of assume that this is the trend going forward that we again this is the enlightenment era that we like hit this crux in 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 human evolution and then it's all just up from here but in, again a, a cursory glance at history shows us that that's not necessarily true. We also have to ask ourselves the final and, and probably most important and dangerous question, is all technology good, right? Is technological innovation always a good? Um, I think we can look at a lot of things and be like, well, you know, like you said, oh, I wouldn't be alive today if it wasn't for certain medical things. And I'm sure that's very true, right? A vast major, uh, or large chunk of the population, probably including at least one of us, wouldn't be here if it wasn't for medical technology, right? At the same time, uh, medical technology isn't free. And what if uh, we lose certain things about humans and humanity? What if we learn certain, we lose certain things about society? What if terrible and awful and, uh, you know, uh, disastrous things come from uh, technology? I mean, you know, of course, science fiction is full of this stuff, right? AI and the, the, the human, every AI you know, story ends with these guys turning on us and wiping out humanity, yet still, all we can do is run as fast as we can towards this, even though all we can imagine is terror at the end of, the, of this process. It's a horrible visualization tactic. Like, we only envision this turning out bad, and yet, let's, let's go for it. All we do is sprint at it full speed, right? I mean, look at, look at the current pandemic. It is very likely that the pandemic occurred because we were dead set on doing research that was just always going to be terrible, right? Like we, we, you know, paid probably and, and financed the development of pathogens just to see if we could solve the problem and end up creating something far worse. So the idea that the, that technology and, and those kind of things will always be worth the trade-off. I mean, we've won that bet kind of so far, but we're definitely getting to the point. I mean, the, you know, the fact that we started developing weapons that could wipe off every living thing on the face of the earth was probably the, the turning point where, where, where we could say that maybe there is a cost that's higher than the benefit. We saved, you know, millions of lives through medical technology. Okay, well, we could also wipe out billions with the wrong string of codes, right? And so I, I, I think there are a lot of assumptions baked into the idea that we would always we were always going to arrive at this point as long as we stuck with the enlightenment and that the benefits are always there and that those things should be the highest goal and the things that we're willing to sacrifice yeah i suppose if it's just technology for the sake of technology without some kind of moral code behind it without the right people following the right morality then then technology for technology's sake I mean, it it could be way worse than than if we didn't have it. Like like you said, if this all ends in a nuclear exchange, yeah, maybe it's cool that we got to be born. But 
but you know, it didn't really work out in the end. So Aaron, this is a really great conversation. I really, this is the kind of stuff that I really enjoy uh, digging into. So I'm glad I was able to have you on here and pick your brain on a lot of the elements of these conversations that, that I've heard and, and you know, a lot of the questions that I've had about it. So uh, if other people are listening right now and they are equally intrigued by uh, the kind of stuff you're talking about and want to find out more, where can they follow uh, all your work? Uh, sure. So I'm uh, Oren McIntyre on YouTube. You can just Google it. It should come up. And then uh, I've also got Rumble and Odyssey channels. If you prefer to watch on an alt tech uh, channel, I've also got a uh, Twitter, uh, which is where most people know me from at this point and uh, and a gab. Uh, so you can uh, look at all those different places if you're uh, trying to find my work. I do. Uh, I do a lot of edited video essays and then interviews and, uh, and live streams as well. Awesome. Well, Aaron McIntyre, thanks again for coming on the show. Keep up the great work. Keep on roaring. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. All right, gang, I hope you enjoyed my conversation there with Aaron McIntyre. You can find his work over on YouTube. And this is, like I said, this is something that's been talked about in, uh, I guess, circles I run in, you could say, uh, lately, the Enlightenment and its actual effects. And uh, it's a conversation that's actually sparked a lot of uh, a lot of thought between myself, between some other people I know. And uh, it's definitely a conversation I plan to be trying to continue in some way, shape, or form, not just the Enlightenment per se, because, you know, looking at history, you know, we can all look at history in various ways, but more the concept of reason, using reason, what does reason mean? Can we find an argument for liberty, for protecting natural lights through reason? Um, I would argue you can, or I would argue you can't. But nonetheless, I really find this conversation intriguing. And if you do as well, please consider supporting us. Uh, you have so many ways to do so, either at Patreon, patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. If you're a Patreon adverse, locals, lionsofliberty.locals.com. Help us do this full time. Help us break away from the system ourselves. Help us achieve more liberty. You can do that by supporting us in various different ways. Of course, uh, you can also just support us directly with one-time uh, donations at paypal.me slash lions of liberty. Of course, if you want to follow my writing, you can do so at Substack. It's called Metanoia. You can find it at markclair.substack.com. I also want to give you one final plea. Not final plea. I'll probably keep playing forever. But uh, if, if if you're listening to this on the Lions of Liberty Network feed, where you can find my show, you can also find Brian with his brand new Mean Age Daydream every Wednesday and John Odermatt on Thursdays with Finding Freedom. If you're subscribing on the network feed, lovely. I love you. You're fantastic. What I ask you to do is Maybe subscribe to my feed too. I have the Malayans of Liberty Mark with Mark Claire feed. Uh, but if you don't want to do that because you get all your content here on the network, that's cool. But I would ask you to do me one favor and that's go to the Lions of Liberty with Mark Claire feed on Apple Podcasts. Give that puppy a five-star rating and a great review. That'll really help me out uh, to grow that feed. Of course, we're all trying to grow our shows individually as we do so within the network as well. So however you want to support us, there are just so many options. However you want to support us, however you want to listen to us, uh, and you get access to all sorts of, well, early access to my interviews in the Patreon and the locals, as well as tons of bonus content. We are now doing uh, a monthly Ask Me Anything with the hosts. We're going to rotate in uh, some of our reoccurring cast like Howie, JB, Rico, some other friends of the show. And once a month, we're going to all get together and have a good old jam session just for our patrons, just for our local supporters for the pride. Uh, because we don't really used to do the shows like that a lot. Now we've all kind of gone in our own directions and we don't do those group shows too often. So you'll be able to find those behind the pay walls uh, by supporting us on patreon or locals and that's all i got this week but i have a hell i mean a hell of a lineup coming up in the next few weeks and heck i may as well just preview them now i'll be speaking to don the pleb from pleb media hilarious and insightful youtuber i'm also gonna have jay dyer on the show a lot of you guys are out there are a fan of his work i'm also gonna have andrew from popular liberty back on to delve into his gop strategy so that is a little preview of the next few weeks here on lions of liberty but you can hear it all early by heading over to patreon patreon.com slash lions liberty locals i'm saying it a lot lions liberty locals.com but it's because well you know sometimes you just gotta keep saying something and beating 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 it into your skulls until you go ahead and do it but either way i'm so happy to have all you guys here roaring with me every single monday and until next time my friends live long and live free and live free and live free and live free